Hey everyone, welcome to the show, friends. Uh, my name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be the host for today's Disco Posse podcast. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by our good friends, uh, number one, over at Beam Software. Uh, so everything you need, your single backup and data management platform for cloud, virtual, and physical, uh, this is it. Not only that, but they've actually done some really cool stuff because they just bought a company called Castin, which means they've landed and become the market leader for Kubernetes backup and disaster recovery. So if you want to check out more, go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. That'll let them know that you came from old Disco here and also just learn about them. They're really fantastic. Uh, it's a great team, a great platform. Been a longtime fan and, in fact, a user, uh, and they've been sponsoring my blog and podcast. Uh, so, but I believe in them, really, which is why they're here. Today's show is also brought to you by Velocity Closing. If you're running a technical sales team or you're involved at all in technical sales or anything to do with product management and product marketing, what you need to do is be able to learn how to better connect with your potential and existing customers. So I put together a platform called Velocity Closing. It's a beginning of a long journey that you're going to go on, but it starts right now. If you go to VelocityClosing.com, you can download the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. This is a way of closing the gap, better connecting, and better engaging with your customers. Whether you're writing, creating, whether it's video or in-person demos, this is the way to be able to understand how to unlock better conversations and better engagement. So go to VelocityClosing.com, and if you go right now and you actually buy it, you get a super special going on where you can get the ebook. you're going to get access to the audiobook and to an online course, which is coming up. So check it out. Go to VelocityClosing.com. Today's episode features Jen Bonin. Jen is the co-founder of the AI App Store. We talk a lot about the power of AI, how to commoditize access to AI in doing things like bot and chat management. And there's actually just so much stuff that I didn't even know what was going on before I started this conversation. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This is Jen Benin for the AI App Store. Hey everybody, I am Jen Bameen. I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of a company called the AI App Store. And um, I'm also a author and we like to do a lot of philanthropy as part of our culture and mission. And um, recently focused on um, youth and helping our youth around entrepreneurship as well. And a new children's book we have coming out. Very cool. Now, this is, we've got such a wide array of things that I want to cover, Jen, because it's, uh, you've got a really great sort of storied history uh, in what you're tackling. I'm a, a massive fan of the kind of the way you approach things. Uh, because we'll talk about the idea of sustainable development goals and the, the very the sort of culture and people-centric approach that you're using technology to achieve, which is why we're supposed to do it, right? Not tech for tech's sake. Uh, and, and really just the, the evolution as well of, you know, being a, a strong leader, uh, you've spoken at some incredible events, you've had, a, had the ability to have a good, strong impact. And I hope 
there's significantly more coming. Uh, but let's start with uh, the AI App Store. Let's talk about what it is that that you and the team are doing there, and uh, you know how are we how are we going to do great things thanks to what you can do to make this accessible to to people and developers and and teams in order to do you know, let them do fantastic things, which I think ultimately is the biggest thing, right? I've got amazing technology. It's only amazing because somebody uses it to do something even more amazing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's, that was really the premise we've always started with. So um, my two co-founders and I have known each other now. We, we say um, it's how we know we're getting old when I think about how long we've actually known each other as a team and what we've worked on. And we're a little over 10 years at this point. We're coming up on our 11 year anniversary uh, as a group. And you're absolutely right. You touched on it earlier. Um, we really want humanized AI solutions. So we very much come from the school of thought of bots are there to basically um, augment or assist us as humans um, in the jobs that we can do. So it's, a lot of it's about what do bots do well? What do humans do well? And ensuring that the humans are able to focus on the things that we're really good at, right? So contextualized um, intelligence, understanding the relevance of the data sets we're looking at, understanding problem solving and critical thinking skills. So we really focus on that and getting humans to be able to do those things and then removing some of the work um, that bots are really good at because we as humans get fatigued. So it's, we've all done this. We've looked at the email 12 times. We think it's perfect. We hit send and someone else reads it the first time and sees a bunch of issues or errors in it that we didn't see. So bots are really consistent. And so we leverage the AI to be really consistent in those tasks that could tend to be fatiguing are we just don't crunch numbers and data the same way that a bot does. It can you know, go through hundreds of thousands of different um, scenarios and iterations in a fraction of the time we as humans could. So really that's what we're about is that humanized AI, but then also looking at things like right now, we made a little bit of a pivot because we were seeing the organizations we work with really struggle right now with fatigue and a lot of the zoom fatigue or meeting fatigue people not feeling as productive so to your point we pivoted to focus on some productivity tools so things like as an example um, a single pane of glass to operate in as your um, virtual workspace so it's it's a virtual office similar to a physical office you can um, have your virtual office with four walls or five walls if you want, if you want it oddly shaped. Um, and on each of those walls, you can have different things that you're actually doing and working on, as well as um, you're able to decorate that office with things you care about. Because one of the things we miss today is we can't go into offices and see people's space the way we used to, to understand the type of individual they are. But with what we're doing, we can do that. We can also, you can virtually close your door. So say you're having a conversation with someone and your door's closed, you're online, but your door's closed because you guys are having a chat. We can visualize that for other people in your organization so that you don't have to send out a ping or a Slack message or whatever to tell people. The other things we're doing is um, chatbots and those Chatbots, um, you talk to it just like you would anyone else. It's your virtual research assistant and your virtual research assistant. You can say, 
hey, um, schedule me a meeting with Eric. I want that tomorrow. Can you find when we're both available? And it'll come back with times for you. Those types of tasks, eliminating. Tons more, but that's some of the stuff we're doing to make other people's lives better and easier in the work that they have to do and make them feel more connected to what's going on right now as they're more virtualized um, and not able to be physically together. You had me at virtual meeting booker. That's the most fantastic thing. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, like the, but those are like meaningful little things. Like you, number one, right? We, so my, my virtual world, I'm in a lot of meetings with folks remotely and, and I actually teach, uh, I, I teach behavioral uh, relationship uh, selling basically for people to help them to understand how to use tried and true techniques and then take these practices and turn them into, you know, good ways to build relationships and understand people. And it's funny, like you said, putting a, a picture on the desk, little things like that are very interesting in that it does tell you a lot about a person, right? The way they, the way they sit, there's nonverbals, there's stuff in the office. And so today I teach people, it's the bookmark bar of your browser. When someone shares their screen, the first thing I do is go like, look at the bookmark bar and look at the icons in the bottom. And it tells you what their prioritized applications are. And it's funny that like little nuanced things like that, but that it used to be like you go into the room and you see a stack of newspapers. You're like, here's a person that likes to research, but doesn't have time because there's a stack of them and they haven't read them yet. So <laughs> you can, so you really learn about somebody by their physical and now like virtual space, which is, which is kind of cool. And like you said, the, the meeting thing, like just all these little things that are nuanced little smart things that if you, but they eat up productivity time and they, they get fatigue. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I tire every day. I'm like, Oh boy, another zoom meeting. Yay. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Right. Like everyone's struggling with it. And you know, it's funny. We're, we're working on something with someone else. She was getting a rating scale of your level of fatigue, meeting fatigue. So over the course of a day, you could, you could rate yourself of how fatigued you are and understand if you need to like have days where you're not having meetings, make some changes to only do 45 minute meetings instead of hour meetings. But we always take things a step further, right? So um, what we do is we solve problems when we hear people's challenges. So she's coming up with a fatigue rating scale and we said, well, we can do one even better. If you have that rating scale, we can incorporate um, visual identification to sh actually look at the person's face, their eyes, their facial expression, to give them a score based on what we're seeing throughout the day of their level of fatigue and when they're performing optimally. Because now that we're virtualized, one of the things we have the opportunity to do too is think differently about when and how we work and timing that with our own natural who we are as humans some of us work better at certain times of the day and are more uh, able to get more done so giving people that type of insight into themselves even helps them with when should i tackle those really tough things that i have you know as opposed to doing it at a time of the day when i'm naturally on a downward slope right where you're you're taking that natural um less energy, less product productivity or whatever. And then what we've inherently done is hopefully gotten people where instead of a task taking them what could have been an hour, hour and a half down to 30 minutes or 45 minutes. But every little time we can do that and help um, alleviate some of that extra time, it buys people time to have 
have extra capacity to focus on other things, right? To use the smartness of us as humans and have more creative and free space in our days. And this is interesting because it is just that it's amplifying and in embracing the, the human side of, of our day. We use technology to get rid of mundane stuff that we can. And it's funny, people get, there's this, there was this really progressive set of FUD out there, right? Talking about like AI is going to take our jobs. Like, well, no, it, it will affect certain job sectors, but the dominant effect of AI in day-to-day office work, in lean manufacturing and all these different things can significantly increase safety prolong our ability to have better careers, more satisfying careers. And like you said, move to focused stuff that's very human. I don't, I'm really good at calendar picking. I don't want to be good at it. (laughs) Right, right. Who? Yeah. Why would you want that as, you know, if you could have someone do that and help you with it, I call them your virtual research assistants. I mean, how many of us couldn't use a couple virtual research assistants to help point us in the right direction, do some of the heavy lifting, take some of those tasks off our plate, do the things that while we can do it, they're not the best use of our skills, talents, and time as human beings. So yeah, that's where I go with it. And that's exactly what you've said is where I try and um, keep people's mindset and open it up because I think a lot of times we... We fear if we don't understand or know, and there's a lot of unknown about AI. There's also a lot of companies, frankly, that take a different approach where it's not what I mentioned to you, where it's about humanized AI, and they are looking at replacement theory where do, how do you just replace humans altogether? And I think you know, if we can all focus on gaining insights and being conscious consumers to support the types of companies that are building tech that is um, in the the same values and ethics of what we all care about, right? So everyone has different things that are important to them. But I think now more than ever is a time of conscious tech consumption where you have to be aware of where the tech companies you're working with are aligned, you know, what devices you're choosing to purchase and utilize in your own homes and your lives, and then where your companies and and, um, different organizations you work with choosing to align. Because I think that will be a conscious decision point for people is tech awareness and being conscious consumers of this tech, because it will be very impactful who has access to data and all those types of things as we do move forward. It really becomes a thing of helping people to understand how much of them is, uh, I call it the uniqueness of a very identical snowflake. That it, we always talk about the idea of this, you know, every snowflake is different. Well, they, it's true, but actually about 90% of the snowflake is identical to every other snowflake. It's only about 10%, which is vastly different. So unique that that's the actual irreplaceable you of you. It's your soul, it's your impact, it's your ethos, it's things that drive you, it's the way that you execute your personal vision in day-to-day operations, right? And so get rid of the 90%. Like there's so much of that stuff that you're not able to do the 10% that's really impactful and unique because you're doing all of these other things, especially when you look at not just you as a, as a single unit, but you as a team unit, as a community unit, and our ability to now interact and impact adjacent 
you know, people and communities. It's every time we're doing these things, you know, sort of the mundane 90% or 70%, whatever you want to call it, it really does. It just, it limits the ability for us to have a, a strong, I won't say necessarily exponential, but it is potentially an exponential impact on the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's just, I think all of us, you know, it just, if we, if we think about, I I think about it on an individualized basis, I give people the challenge of just do this, you know, a couple of days, write down all the tasks you do all day long now, right? Especially when you're remote, like how much time are you spending scheduling meetings or looking at people's calendars? How much time are you spending doing, you know, setting up Zoom calls and, you know, creating all the the access to them and sending out invites. You know, just think about all the different things you do. And then I always say, like, think about if you could have an assistant or a virtual research assistant or an AI chat bot or a bot that would help you do some of these items. And then you say, let's just call it conservatively for some people. It's only going to save them uh, 15 minutes or 30 minutes a day. But when you think about you work five days a week, some people are working more than that now. And you save that 30 minutes times the five or six days you're putting in in a work week. And this is conservative again. And then you take it over a month and a year. That's a lot of time back in our lives to free up to, you know, read those magazines or books you're not reading, to listen to podcasts, to gain more information, to just play with your kids or spend time with your family and loved ones. You know, that's a lot of of spare cycles we'll actually get. And it's that whole, you know, work smarter, not harder right now and keeping people in a place where they can work smart as we're seeing, you know, natural productivity loss and drop right now in a lot of individuals just because of, you know, some of the strain mentally with all the change and the uncertainty of what's happening in the world and all kinds of things things like that, that actually allows for more of those mental breaks, exercise, being able to get up and move around and take care of yourself, you know, both physically and mentally, instead of just continuing to feel like you're constantly behind in your job or at work. One advantage I think we've gained from, you know, uh, look, there's no, there's no good side of the, the pandemic and the stuff we've gone through. However, you know, when left with no alternative, we are where we are. So what do we do with what we have available to us? I believe that we've potentially, I may put this to you, have we commoditized opportunity that we've given the ability now where you no longer, you've been recognized, you know, by, by many different journals, which effectively probably sit on Sand Hill Road <laughs> in, in, in Santa Clara, right? But you're not, you don't have to be there every day now in order to have that impact and to be able to create something. You know, if I look at what your team's doing, you know, you, you don't have to be based on the West Coast, based in New York, based in wherever, because we've got this commoditized appearance of availability. Now, I think that I, I see, hopefully, a great opportunity for people now that we have a more remote friendly uh, lifestyle as we move, hopefully, to you know, kind of more back towards where we can get together and travel safely and, and do things like that. Well, and I think it'll make people us think about, right? Like, do I really, it's always, it gives you that paradigm shift. And I think a paradigm shift is good because it's, it's the opportunity to dismantle 
things we thought were set for us, right? So a lot of times we say, there's no way we can change this. It just is how it is. And then something as dramatic as what we've seen happen to all of us across the globe, you know, this year happens and it forces us into that shift, right? We, we have to rethink how we do things. We have to be willing to make some changes we weren't otherwise willing to make. So I really do think it, you know, that if we embrace kind of what can we do differently and dismantle what I call limiting beliefs, where we were limiting ourselves by geography or we were limiting ourselves by the ability to be in person or we were limiting these different things, you're now opening up to some experiences you otherwise wouldn't have had. I, one example, you mentioned, you know, the conferences and events that you go to and get a chance to see all these amazing people. Well, what I've actually seen this year is there's an event that I normally go to in Georgia in Atlanta, and I saw at one event 12 speakers I've never seen at the same event ever in my entire life because when you think about their schedules and that commitment and whether or not it's worth it for all of them to fly and take multiple days off and you know be there in person, that's a lot more challenging. So I think all of us have more, to your point, accessibility to some of the people that otherwise weren't as available because we would have had to physically go to events to see them. We would have had to physically be in person to see them at these conferences and things. And now you have the opportunity to get more of this, of this diversity of thought around different problems and different tech instead of localizing or regionalizing, you now have that capability to get broader perspectives on how people see the world and how they see tech and different ways to solve the problem and thinking it through um, in more of a, a broader community than we were before. Even like with the pandemic, the way that we're coming up with ideas around data and vaccines, now it's not perfect. Not everyone is opening their doors and truly collaborating. Um, like we could, but I would say the collaboration we're seeing on this across borders is better than what we've seen in the past. So while not perfect, we're starting to see more of that collaboration and breaking down, I think, some of those barriers and boundaries to really solve problems. And I think that as you know, as a global community is when we really start to make impact is we allow more thinking in and we get access to um, thought leaders who aren't just local to us, but are the, the best thought leaders, no matter where they happen to be or live. You bring up a very important, you know, point in especially the phrasing, like diversity of thought and how important that is, especially now that, like you said, we've sort of flattened the, the ability for people to be places, which is fantastic. Uh, we're now yeah, only bound by time zone and availability versus can I get a flight? Is there a hotel? Uh, you know, have I got, can I go to the place because I've, I've got a passport, whatever. There's, there actually were a lot of reasons. There's obviously trade-offs that, that are there as well, but the, the diversity of thought in now that we can amplify potential voices that didn't have that opportunity. And while some stuff can't be gotten rid of, like you said, we struggle with, you know, the way that things have gone for however long, like we go on and there's, there's a speaker circuit, right? I, I fought for a long time to get onto the speaker circuit. And then once I was on it, I was like, this is not cool because now I'm the person that someone's going to fight against to get on the speaker circuit. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. But, so what I did was I stepped out 
and purposefully, you know, shoved people in. Every time I would get a speaking opportunity, I'd be like, uh, busy, here's who should go in my stead. And I would actually, uh, you know, give somebody else that opportunity. So how important is diversity of thought and how you've seen the, the stuff and the work that you're doing? I think it's hugely important. So if we just look back historically at, and diversity of thought for me, as I mentioned it when I introduced myself, part of it is um, diversity of, you know, the the age group of the individuals working on the project, right? So that there's um, there's intergenerational thinking happening. I think intergenerational thought processes around tech are really important because if we look at the consumers of these products or the people that will be using them, there are different generations at play and there's different priorities um, even amongst inside what we would call um, a Gen Z or um, a Gen X or a Gen Y or any of these generations, even inside them, they have nuances of what they care about and like depending where they sat. Um, and when they were born. So I love seeing um, intergenerational discussions on tech and how they solve problems. I love seeing um, different socioeconomic backgrounds, like people who grew up either with tons of access to tech or people who didn't grow up with that, or parents maybe that just didn't understand tech, that didn't um, allow them to have that tech when they were younger, seeing how they look at things. You know, people who um, have different backgrounds. They've just, they've lived in the city or they've lived in the country. They've lived somewhere without good Wi-Fi and internet. You know, all those things make a difference in how we see and frame our perspective and perception of the world. And I think right now, especially when we look at the, what's being built and the tech that we're building it will underpin all of our lives. It's helping make decisions on whether we get selected for a job interview, which means it's helping us with, do we get that job we wanted at a certain company or not? It's helping with, do we get that car loan or do we not get that? Do we get home loans? You know, will we be accepted if we try and rent an apartment in a certain building? You know, all of this type of stuff is happening using the tech that's being built. So having people that come from these diverse thought processes and diverse backgrounds, I think is really important. And I think about it different than, you know, just the traditional. And that's why I use that phrasing, especially when I talk about it, is it's not just, you know, a lot of people hear diversity and they think, oh, it's just about, um, you know, your gender or, you know, what race are you or any of these things. And that's, I think of it much broader than that because, where I've seen things go sideways is when you don't have intergenerational discussions, when you don't have people of different socioeconomic backgrounds talking about how to solve it and the cost and the price points and, you know, all of that as well. So there's a lot that goes into this tech and I think it's going to, you know, I know already that it's impacting our lives, it's impacting decisions that get made about us you know, every aspect of your life will be touched by AI at some point. Um, we say software is eating the world. The quote I love, software is eating the world, but AI is eating software. So, <laughs> so, Take that, point, Mark Andreessen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so there you go. So, um, so it's crazy, right, that th this is the process. So I would, I always vote for more people looking at a problem than less that come from different backgrounds. I always would worry, you talk about reading people and, and how to understand them. 
I would always get worried when I walked into a room of leaders and every single one of them, when they were discussing something really important, just nodded their heads and agreed with the most senior person in the room because you're not leveraging that brain power of those individuals to even come up with alternative suggestions, ideas, even challenge each other's thinking sometimes is just healthy. So I think, you know, those types of organizations, that's what we sought to build. There's frequently discussions in our organization around approach. Like as an example, what I've been describing we're doing today, I originally wanted it to all be AR, VR, and the new XR enabled. So extended reality so that you could not only have it be on your screen, right? And it wasn't as flat, but you could actually physically be in your virtual office and do some of these things. But very rightfully so, a couple of our folks said, well, we want to make it more accessible to companies and we want companies to be able to roll it out. And right now, you know, lots of people can't wear those types of devices or headsets for more than an hour or two. So we want something that was technology agnostic that allowed you to have accessibility and roll it out to your teams faster, not slower and not be dependent on certain devices being available in your organization. So those discussions for us happen all the time, multiple times a day. And we think they're incredibly healthy to us. Then when we go to market, our product market fit um, is pretty spot on because we do a lot of that heavy lifting and work, not only internally, but also with groups of people that we've worked with for years to vet it through their thinking and thought process that varies from ours. And that becomes the the interesting thing of you know that's why I, so there was a funny quote Jared knows a famous thing of of Shaquille O'Neal and and Kobe Bryant and uh, he and he says you know because he kept blocking Kobe and he says hey Kobe how's my AASS taste <laughs> and that was a famous <laughs> quote so I always tell people like hey you know your software is fantastic but we're using AI now how's my AI taste and yeah. <laughs> so a few people get that little nuanced joke but. Uh, <laughs> It really yep. is an opportunity for like AI is meant to to take, uh, you know, take behavioral data and sys systematic data, and then derive other outcomes or potential outcomes from and use it towards you know other things, whether it's planning, whether it's analysis, whether it's you know machine learning for huge capabilities. But there really is a, an unfortunate fear of the impact of, of AI. And when you talked about diversity of thought, that is a tough one, right? Like when we look at what's the data that feeds AI and we say, well, AI is not fair because the world is not fair. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm always torn because I also have to think of, but who ultimately is the receiver of the, the benefit of this? So if you've got a, a predominantly North American audience and use predominantly North American data, it may not be bad, but when you think bigger, and I've looked at your resume, you think bigger, Jen. <laughs> yeah, you, you really, you're thinking bigger. So when in the process of building something, did you say, here's my go-to-market audience, but I got to be careful because I've got greater potential that I have to be ready for? Yeah, for us, it was, you know, we constantly look at 
where the world's going. And, and like I said, we had a pivot. So we came out with a scope early when we founded the company and said, this is, this is where we're going to play in this. And quickly our world changed a lot. Right. And we were watching some of the change come um, even before shutdowns and things like that. We were seeing more and more around um, gamification. We had talked a lot about because we had we had been living in the gaming space since before um, before we had esports and people knew that was a thing. Right. I remember the first time working on the esports platform that they were going to use at Riot Games many years ago. And um, looking at it and saying, wow, like this, this is really interesting, right? When we're going to have people, and I see it today with younger folks, um, my kids, I have a four-year-old, he loves to watch people play video games. He doesn't even always want to play <laughs> them. He just wants to watch people play them. My, my kids yeah. do the same thing. I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, I'm watching someone play a game. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like this whole, and if you think about our social media and all the new social media tools, it's almost like that it encourages this watching what other people are doing, right? Like it's this whole mindset shift of we just look at what everyone else is doing and we're checking up on them and we can read about other people without having to really do those things ourselves. And we kind of live through that. And so we were seeing this shift around just concepts like um, gamification in all industries where where you have the capability, like one of the things in the platform we built, it's around gamification. So imagine now some of the things we've lost, but keeping the gamification to encourage human interaction and understanding um, and encouraging us not to lose some of the skills um, that are really important for us as humans around how we communicate and how we have conversations. So one of the things where we built because it was a, I think it was a 12 year old that suggested, 10 or 12 year old suggested this to us. And the funniest thing, we built it um, in, for schools. We were thinking, oh, this will be a cool thing in um, virtual schools or virtual buildings for youth. And then the craziest stuff is when we start talking to companies and enterprises about these same things, the concepts we were building for youth, they want them even more than the youth wants them. So the concept was around uh, building one of these virtual skyscrapers we build it we can build virtual buildings your virtual office sits in your virtual building but in the, you can create a floor that looks like uh, imagine it looks like a monopoly board right and that floor is laid out like a monopoly board and your um, AI assistant pings you when it's your turn to roll the dice go up to the floor roll the dice make your moves do what you're gonna do and you can come back and go and do your work but this was enabling some of those impromptu games that used to happen in offices where people would have an ongoing game of, you know, whatever, Battleship or, you know, video games or whatever they were doing. But we were looking for it to be a way that you could now virtually take that concept, not just do video games, but more like going back to the basics of what people like of playing board games, but now being able to do it virtually with all of your team members and things like that, but not impact the idea that you still have to be able to get stuff done and do some work. So our whole thing was, we see these concepts starting to emerge. We tap into where we're seeing different industries go and we always look at it 
not just from one industry, but across many different verticals to see where everyone's at and what the things are that they're looking at. And then we always kind of say, okay, this is the pattern that's emerging in this industry. So this is how this operates here. Here's a different pattern we're seeing in finance versus entertainment. Now we're completely having to redo industries like travel and leisure and what that looks like for people, right? We saw that shift. So we just always keep really good tabs on that and then make sure as we're thinking that we've built that into the thought process for, you know, down the road, should there be another pivot or something that changes that becomes really impactful for people. But it helps that we're talking to all these different folks in different industries. It helps that we talk to all different age groups because they all look at things differently. Um, they're the ones who helped us really solve some of what we were doing around, um, we're working on a project right now for anti-bullying and a bot to help um, with that. And that solution really came from youth who see what's happening in the social media space differently than maybe say um, someone in their late 20s versus someone in their 30s versus someone in their 50s, right? So very different views on social media in those age groups of what they like and don't like and how to solve the problem and how to really impact that for a positive way. And, and that's really the, the reason why AI is, is a fantastic opportunity and machine learning and such is because it allows us to do stuff that we used to do by human interaction, right? People always ask me, said, what's your, what's the book you recommend the most to learn about good software development? And I say, uh, it's the DSM. Uh, so the American Psychiatric Association uh, Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And I said, it sounds crazy, <laughs> but I, I read this book through and through. I, I have DSM-4, I'm old school. Uh, there's a five that's came out in 2013. But it really, when you, what it teaches you is it teaches you the, the, I'll call it the sort of the broken edges, right? Yeah. The places where you know that if you understand, because if we look at the, at the, the human experience as only the positive then when the broken edges appear via software, which can happen at a rapid rate, then we have to be able to capture that, understand it's an edge case, deal with it and build for that. But if you specifically go and the first thing you do is think about anti-bullying, what can we do right away? How can I use software to attack this edge? You know, like I'll say that's not an edge case, it's a real problem, but how can I treat software to have it understand where to find this. And then as it goes through normal conversational bots, it can detect mood changes. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I've even got a thing, I, I, I built a little platform that I run for myself and a few people are using right now. They just go in every day and do morning, I call it morning pages, right? You just go and you write a little journal in the morning. And then I tell them to rate like how you feel in the morning yeah. and at night. So every morning they write a little thing and then they rate it and then at night they rate it. But at the same time they submit it, I actually do, uh, I do a sentiment analysis on both the words as well mm -hmm. as the entire uh, body of text. And then compare the words to the full body of text to their perception of how they felt. And through doing that, now I can actually start to help them say like, hey, you're, <laughs> you're kind of going to some dark places, right? Like yeah. you, you're... Yeah. You're saying things that you believe are like, things are going great at work. <laughs> but it's the difference between like, things are going really great at work to things are going great at work. I can't wait until I'm away for the weekend. And you're like, 
some people would hear the weekend and think that's great. Some people would think like, dear God, my work sucks. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then you can actually use those capabilities to read more into it because of this body of AI that's out there to help us with things like sentiment and, and, and help people that, so just to give them an insight into themselves that they may not realize is there. Well, and I think too, we've seen, um, to your point on, on cultural relevance in data too. So getting stories out there that are relevant to different people, different cultures, just expanding that data set for the AI is really important. Um, and we realized that early on so that it can get more sophisticated to understand people's wants and needs. And then it has a ton of application when you get it. Because think about things like um, all of the voice systems and voice is accelerating again, just because of, you know, a lot of people during this don't want to touch things like physically touching the same surfaces as other people. So it's easier to talk to something and have it give you what you need and respond. But voice is going to create a whole new set of challenges leveraging AI for all of us where um, instead of in a physical experience where we may do a search through a search engine on our computer or our device, it returns back, the, the um, AI can return back the relevant items that it thinks that you're looking for. But now when you talk about voice, it's making a lot of determinations because ideally what's happening in voice is it's giving you back the most relevant answer. To the question asked. So it's self-selecting down to one item. So when you have that, cultural context and relevance of the data is super important. So things like where is a good place to go for a quinceanera? Well, if the, the bot or the voice, um, voice activated system doesn't understand what that means or what that word is, then it's hard to give you the relevant answers and information in relation to that. So one of the things we partnered on with iVow and um, some of the data set challenges was exactly getting data sets that didn't exist, right? Cultures or groups of people that had historically been underrepresented in common data sets in media and other places so that you had more culturally diverse data sets to choose from, which then gives you more options and more relevant choices and all kinds of good stuff. So I think things like that and people just having awareness of, you know, do we have all the data? There's going to be some generations we start to lose. I was talking to someone about, you know, when we start losing some people that are the last remaining people that actually experience certain events in our history, right? So we want to capture all those stories and that data, you know, so we have that before we lose that piece as well in these stories so that it's not gone forever. So there's a lot of things right now, I think, to your point around um, open mindedness of data, what the data sets are, conscious and unconscious bias in it, how people view that information. And that's all going to be really good topics where we want all the, the big brains and all the smartest people across the globe collaborating on these things. What, this is the, the unfortunate conundrum that we face a lot of times is that when we have something and we see a barrier, a significant barrier, and I fully acknowledge it's a tough one, right? Like you see, like, how do we get good data sets? We look and we say whether like visual AI or, or visual machine learning or, or audible, you know, audio stuff and speech. And we're challenged by, like you said, the availability of the current data set is obviously broadly leaning towards, you know, certain cultural areas, et cetera. But then my, like my instinct is like, so let's fight harder and go out and get different data 
but unfortunately there's a, a there's a lot of folks which i'm always surprised by who are like really we're leaning forward early on this stuff and now they're saying well we just need to stop this i'm like you don't understand it's not you can't stop it it's all going to keep going and if you don't involve yourself now in leading where it goes it will get to a place you don't want it to be without mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. absolutely it does <laughs> so the yeah and and this is like i said the the classic thing is you know i even i'm canadian and I still have uh, fights with, with Siri all the time. Like, look, you know, I'm, I find myself yelling like Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction at my Siri. <laughs> like, it's, it's horrifying sometimes because it's just like little nuances about uh, the way I speak or, or words I say, and, and it just doesn't catch it. And so you can see it's frustrating. And I don't have the same level of, of sort of day-to-day -day barrier with language that a lot of folks do. So I... I I really do understand, and I've actually worked with a lot of folks to try and sort of help to tackle that problem, and it's a, it's a tough one, but we need to, I, it's my belief that we need to just keep pushing full force, uh, like I said, or else the, the data isn't going to get, the data is getting bigger, and if, whether we want it to or not, so how do we make sure we can influence the right data getting to the, the, the algorithms and, and doing good things from that, and that's like the day-to-day, -day. so you, you know, looking at what you're doing, and you're solving stuff that's real, current, and then when you go and you say you talk to a 12-year-old, and then you take that idea, and then you bring that to a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old in maybe a similar or even a slightly different context, and they're like, oh, I really would like that. You're like, oh, we didn't know that. I never thought to ask you because it's, it didn't seem like it was in context, but in fact, when we broaden the interviewees, when we broaden the data set that we personally take in, it's surprising how, uh, how much it can lead us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's, you're absolutely right, like the challenge. So, you know, when you build these solutions, if we architect them, just even having some of this information in the beginning versus thinking about it too late in the process, you think about what we miss and how long it takes to re-architect and the expense and, you know, what that does to the team and the work that they've done and having to go back and make a, a huge shift or change in it. So I think just being open to at least having the conversation of are you going to address it or not? And do we understand what it is? And even if you park it for a little while, carrying that thought pattern through the process of building is so important because it's so much harder to go back if you don't account for it. Just even things like um, touch sensors and what reads what, right? Like we know so many um, IoT devices and wearables where the manufacturers of those didn't think about different situations because it didn't exist for them. They may not have had um, tattoo or ink on their wrists, so they didn't know how it would react to that, right? They may not have, um, have only had certain color and tones of skin, so they didn't know or think to test what it would look like if that wasn't the case. So just, you know, that, that's why I always go back to diversity of thought, diversity of data, understanding those data sets you want and how that's going to work and the level of usability for people that are that have different things that they'll be dealing with the one i just recently saw that you made me think of when you mentioned that was um the commercials that are out now with one of the popular voice recognition systems taking into account folks who have down syndrome 
so that they're able to ask questions and be understood and heard through those devices um, when they weren't previously and, and couldn't, couldn't get it to respond back to them, right? So there's a lot of frustration. There's a huge population of people that that was incredibly frustrating for, but we hadn't adapted for it yet that now we're thinking about. So I think as our eyes get open, thinking about those different adaptations as a global community we need to make for folks is, is really cool. That's what I love about what we do, right? We, it's all possibility and, and seeing the possibility in the tech and how that helps or assists humans, you know, in their everyday lives. It is really amazing. I, I even when I tell stories about the the work that I that I do through uh, through my team, and you know, I often lead with these things. They like, oh, are you going to talk about our solution and and whatever the problems we solve? I said, well, no, you'll see. You know, and I ultimately go there with like just picture, like just big picture slides, and say like, this is, you know, imagine the advancements that are made in in medical technologies because of advancing things with AI and, and doing what we do that ultimately enables them to get there faster, do more, get to a vaccine, whatever. And you tell very impactful stories because if you see, it's not what I help you do, it's what I help you do for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that's the, it's the, what you're doing for somebody else is the most important. And, and I had this sort of a flow that I built and I, 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 I like the last slide on it was just, it's a, fantastic picture and we worked with a company called cochlear and i said so imagine and you see the pictures from a video you've probably even seen it and i said that a, a, a two-year-old girl with a brand new cochlear implant and the reaction on her face when she hears her mother's voice for the first time in her life mm. yeah and you, and you watch the room just like mm. i'm not crying you're crying right like people <laughs> up and you're like i said that's that's what you do every day i said you come into work and you log into your console and you look at the servers and you check what's going on. So, but no, that's not what you do. This is what you do. You help that girl hear her mother for the first time. So let's do amazing things and let's use technology to do it. And people are like, I'm fired up. Let's do it. <laughs> it's because you remember why we do this stuff. And like you said, if I can create a, an ability to create a voice assistant for somebody who has Down syndrome, who really can take advantage of being able to now interact and to learn and teach a system that can create something amazing for other folks who have a similar situation. And now we can open up a new learning opportunity and we can change the world of this incredible sector that has incredible capability and unlocked potential. So let's unlock it, right? Let's use technology instead of saying, oh, it's a barrier, edge case, and and then just locking it out, which is unfortunately where a lot of folks kind of think that, that that's where it goes. Yeah. No, I would, I completely agree. That's why, you know, the more I think the conversations happen and people just um, opening up their, their thinking now, I, like you said, we never want, you know, difficult or challenging things to happen across the globe, like what we've seen since this happened in this year. But if it gives an opportunity for us to rethink or forces us to think a little bit differently, which then puts us in that frame of mind of, ah, what else could we do? Or how else could we, you know, get creative or inventive about the way we approach things where before we were just saying we were so busy. Sometimes we get so busy being busy that we don't stop to think about is the busy the right thing? And could we be busy? Are we busy doing the right things or are we just busy? And this slowed, I think, everyone down a little bit to reevaluate. And what I sincerely hope um, for all of us is 
you know, as things shift again and, and if they shift to the point where we can go back to some of, you know, what we would have called how we just, you know, we're in that kind of mindset of, you know, everyone has to be in person. We drive to work every day. We have to do certain things, all of that, that we keep some of the good habits we've learned during this time of, you know, consciously choosing, you know, what we're able to do, who we're spending time with, you know, and evaluating what we really have changed for the better or for good during this time. And then we don't go back to an old pattern, right? Because you know this with how much you look at people and behavioral analysis, but it doesn't take that long to establish patterns, right? And so if, if things shift again, can we, will we just go back and, and forget we were capable of certain things or will we stay open to the things we really like about the new patterns we're creating as a global community, as local communities, you know, in different geographies and, and thinking consciously about that, right? Like you make people do write down how you're feeling and what are the things you're really enjoying. And there's a checkpoint exercise um, that I'm going to, I've done it in my past, but I'm getting really good at saying, you know, what am I proud of? Um, what would I change if I could go back knowing that what I know now and start the year over, um, you know, what basically brings me joy and what gives me strength in my life and evaluating those things and then creating the patterns I want around the answers to those questions to just checkpoint, like you were saying you have folks do. And I really hope that all of us um, are thinking about strategies to do that, to take the lessons and what we've learned and what we like um, and then move it forward and keep the new patterns we want to build. Now, one other thing I'd, I'd like to talk to you about, and, and it's, I didn't want to be the center of what we do. This is the, the struggle I face when you're, you're, you're a female founder. You are doing stuff not just for you and your own team, but you help with women, you help with training, doing a lot of really amazing things to help people with youth. Lots of folks who maybe traditionally don't have access and are generally represented equally, you know, amongst founders and capital work, startup coaching, and stuff like that. Have you, how, how does that affect, you know, your way that you approach things in, in business? I'm curious if it does, because like, I, it's even a weird thing. I don't want to say like, you're a female founder, so therefore we should only talk about women's issues. And it's, it's not so not true because I know I wanted your story. It just so happens that you're also a female founder, which is really the secondary to the original thing, which was you are you. And, and you know, so what can we do better? You know, and what are you doing you know, in, that, in those kind of areas? I think, um, so one of them is just seeing more role models in different spaces and educating youth young about the opportunities in all professions and all careers and the accessibility of that. So um, one of the reasons why youth Dream Tank, um, Teen Women, their Empower program for youth was so important to me and all these youth programs is um, I was talking, for example, to a very large um, home improvement um, company, and they were saying that they need 28,000 folks to go into the trades careers right now by 2028 in order to satisfy the demand and needs of, you know, building buildings and, you know, doing all of the work that goes into constructing um, 
buildings and other things, right? And there aren't as many youth that are open or going into those careers because they don't know what that means or what it looks like. So one of the passions I have is educating youth early through experiences of what is it like to go into some of these professions now, technology enabled, right? And are those things they're interested in? So that it's not purely limited to, um, did you get that experience or exposure when you were young? It's, it's much more open around what is my dream and what am I passionate about and what do I love to do? And then seeing more folks um, that you can relate to as mentors because, you know, for first generation to college folks, for a lot of different people, it's not even just about getting to where they want to go. It's about do they have someone to talk to once they get there so they stay and don't leave those professions, careers, um, educational opportunities, those types of things as well. So I think it's a, a twofold thing of um, educating and supporting youth to get the experiences they need early, you know, um, understanding what we need to do to, to create interest in certain careers that we're maybe not creating interest in because those programs don't exist today young enough um, for individuals to see where their passion lie and then creating more opportunities just to show them that you know you you can succeed you'll be able to do this if you choose to and there's more mentors out there that they can work with to pursue their passions who they feel they can connect with and they have commonalities with so um i think that's important i think the other thing that has to change is um and i've had these conversations so it's just the reality of the way the world works today but i really do think um, our venture capital system and some of that needs to alter because we're still not putting as much into, and they've done studies to, through um, BCG and other groups to prove um, that you want diversity of thought, you want different types of founders, but the ones who technically traditionally have had access to funding are a smaller group of people and, and a different group of people. So I think if we could figure out um, how to fund more diversity in our companies and our tech it's going to breed a lot of what we want for those mentors and other things in the world i was also i did some work um in at the world economic forum i was there for the launch of the hundred thousand women campaign which is not just diverse founders but diverse founders in um second and third world countries where we get fewer people being able to have access to capital to build companies and organizations but when we hit something like we're in now, where it was like 2008 when we hit, hit a financial crisis and have some downturn in the economy or some uncertainty, usually what we find is constraint breeds innovation. Like when we get constrained, a lot of innovation comes out and that's a pattern. So now's a great opportunity, I think, for venture firms and people who are cash flush to invest in some of these um, companies that traditionally we haven't invested in because if you actually look at the data, they are showing higher rates of innovation because they have diverse um, folks building and um, creating. They are having good returns on the investment, even though they're getting less money traditionally, their returns are still higher, even with lower funding. So I think it's just opening our eyes to saying, how do we all participate in creating additional innovation, which will then um, help the entire economy, giving those opportunities to folks that traditionally have been locked out of some of them. Where are we still not providing some of those opportunities? 
um, to folks around capital and things like that, that if we did, that would help, you know, the GDP would help all of us. Um, we would have cooler, better tech um, that everyone would be able to use. We would be helping more people in their day-to-day -day lives. All those things would be good. So how do we look at that? And that's really, I guess, the twofold way I look at it as I don't see as many female founders in the tech space. Um, I belong to one organization where uh, literally I think there was 200 women on this and they were all um, founders, but there was one other tech company that was founded by a female. There's So again, just providing more opportunity to um, see role models and mentors in those spaces, I think is good for everyone. And then giving our youth opportunities. I didn't grow up with, I had a teacher and a nurse as my parents. So they were in in those types of professions and careers. They weren't in tech careers. They didn't know a lot about that. I didn't have access um, to a lot of tech as a child, but I was very entrepreneurial, young in my, in my life. And that was natural to me. Like my parents weren't in that same mindset. Like, honestly, I, I was telling a story the other day. I went to my parents at some point and I was five and I said, I need some type of document. I didn't know what it was because I was five. I need some type of document <laughs> that will um, create an agreement between myself and the other children in the neighborhood about my toy redistribution process. Right. And I was looking for, you know, them signing basically a waiver saying, I know I gave Jennifer toys and in return, I got some tickets and I took a different toy. Right. Because I didn't want to get in trouble when the kids didn't like the outcome. But, <laughs> you know, I, but you don't know what it is. You just know something should be different. But giving kids those opportunities early on with mentors who do get it. I, you know, I can't even imagine if I would have had someone who said, well, we should maybe think about, you know, scaling this business and how do you do that? And will that help other kids? And then you don't have as much wasted toys and plastic and stuff all the time. And kids are getting interesting things to play with, right? There would have been a whole that long ago business model that now we have as stores like Once Upon a Child and other things where you just recycle them. But um, be right back. I'm register. I'm about to register trade <laughs> trade for tots.ai and, and like this is this is the new thing. It's but it it is literally that it's the you know, like they said the necessity is the mother of, of invention, and I find the adversity creates the most strong. Like we as a society and as a species are are we we actually thrive on this concept of anti-fragility, right? If we look at the Nassim Taleb talks about it, but ultimately it's like adversity creates, you know, so it's both diversity and adversity, diversity of thought an understanding of much beyond just your own awareness of, of your sphere of the world. And then adversity, uh, you know, how does it go when it goes wrong? Uh, which is why, like I said, I, I studied, you know, behavioral psychology, because I wanted to know what happens when it breaks so that you could know when it's going well, what's going, how to make, keep it well. And because you knew the edges and those two things come together beautifully. And, and we're going to see a whole new vast array of startups, but it also comes with like, you've literally, I'll say you've gone to the top. You, you were at Davos. You've had an opportunity to be there and to speak to this broad platform of, of people. But also what's really incredible, what you're doing, let's talk about your, your book series. Because uh, this is, I think, where we have the real opportunity, which is planting seeds. 
Yeah, I, I do too. And, and it starts, like I said, with youth where maybe they're asking questions uh, that their parents can't even answer because that's not a field that they're familiar with or they know the answers. And the younger we can ask some of those questions and put something into perspective, especially technology that all these young people are going to you know, basically live with whatever we're building now and we'll have the chance to hopefully change or augment it, but they're, it's going to be part of their worlds. Um, the idea behind the book series was um, to have something that was an animal. So we have in the, the star of the book series is a lion um, and the lion's best friend is a bot and it's supposed to mimic the relationship between humans and bots. And we're doing it with an animal because kids love animals. So this animal happens to be different. And how we start out the book series is the, the lion asking why she's different than everyone else when she gets picked on on a playground with the other animals. And she didn't realize there was a problem until someone else brought it up. Right, which happens a lot today with youth of they're just going about merely being who they are as young people and having a great time. And someone says something that knocks them out of um, what they thought was just their normal. And now they're questioning it, but they don't have the right way or the support to, to utilize the data that AI provides to get the answer. So um, in this series, it develops the characters, but basically the lion asked her mom, as a lot of people do, you ask a parent, you know, so-and-so said I'm different, you know, different's bad, right? And they told me different's bad and, and moms do what, and what our parents or moms usually do. And she says, well, different is what makes you, you. And we all are different and that is good. And, and everyone is different. Um, but it's your parents. You're like, well, okay, well, that's fine, but you're my parent. So we developed the story where Bot then becomes the best friend to this lion and is able to help answer questions and things that come up in the world by teaching about algorithms and AI and machine learning and data sets, but in a safe way that's answering basic questions that they get asked on the playground all the time or you know, things they engage and interact with. So Bot takes the lion on all these various adventures. One of them's around, why do some people celebrate certain holidays and I don't? And learning about different holidays and using algorithms to give you data sets and information about um, different things you weren't aware of. We go into self-driving cars and talk about what parts are actually um, machine learning and what's AI in, inside of that and, you know, the different types of AI that exist. So by teaching youth these things and opening up their eyes and getting some of the questions, um, the belief is that they'll in turn help educate their parents. <laughs> so they'll learn something too as they're reading these stories stories to their children. And I do know in, in certain countries already, they teach concepts around um, machine learning as early as um, kindergarten and first grade, which we're not yet doing um, in the vast majority of countries aren't doing it. There's very few that are, but by doing that um, in a safe and fun series or way, the children have the capability to ask those questions and start engaging with the technology differently and a little bit earlier and providing them support, which I think is awesome. Just as I talk to my own four-year-old and he's vastly curious 
about what we do at work and how it works and why it works that way and why you get certain things versus others as results. So it's, I think, just opening those questions when their minds are so open to possibility at an early age. Yeah, so uh, we we probably grew up, or at least what my parents grew up with, the you know C spot run, and so now we C spot run, C spot uh, differentiate between uh, logistic regression and naive Bayes as an algorithm. Like it, we <laughs> we 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 need to do that because it's current. Yeah. It's it is it is what they're going to to have as they mm-hmm. walk further into it, and and we've got accessibility for this stuff, which I think is why it's a a fantastic opportunity, and it is not in a way. This is why it's. It's surprising how much easier it is outside of the traditional North American schooling system and a lot of like our, I'll say, uh, you know, traditions, you know, of uh, it in, you know, other countries that generally struggle more economically. The, the strange thing is they, they embrace these things more rapidly because it, they just know, you know, I've got nowhere to go so let's go further, right? Let's go further with, with information. And they tend to mm-hmm. seek it here. Here, it's, it's funny that we are, unfortunately, we vastly adopted stuff like social media and, and we're starting to see the, the, some of the downsides to, to it, which is another you know, area of, of strong study that I put a lot of effort into. But again, I find that the common reaction amongst folks is, well, then I'm just gonna, not going to give my kids a, a phone. I'm like, oh, they're they're going to get a phone. Oh, don't worry. And they're even worse. They're going to have friends with phones. Yep. Uh, so what do we do to give them access to that? And, and, and ultimately, like I said, let's commoditize availability. That's even when we talk about AWS, people say AWS, you know, commoditized things, you know, so why is it so expensive? Like, well, you know, if they didn't commoditize the price. They commoditize the availability of the services. So let's commoditize information. Mm-hmm. And let's make it broadly available. And like you said, give something fantastic to people that they, they think differently. Like when an adult plays a game, they get sore thumbs because they're like physically just like angrily like moving the joystick. They get frustrated. <laughs> you can tell, like I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I watch my four-year-old and he, it's just effortless for him because he doesn't have an understanding that it's not going right, that he doesn't think that he can physically manipulate it. I'm broken. I've, I've been around too long. I think I can physically move this thing in a way and it will become, it will go harder to the right if I pull my arms to the right because I've, I've got things that are pre-built into me that I've got to shake out. Our youth doesn't have anything to shake out. They're beautiful sponges of absorption and, and we can put stuff in front of them. So it's, so it's funny when people say like AI is dangerous. I'm like, I don't know. I got a few friends of mine that I wouldn't, they probably wouldn't pass a Turing test. I'm not worried about AI. I'm worried about us being afraid of it so long that it mm-hmm. becomes pervasive anyways. It already yep. is. Yep. So yeah, let's, let's do stuff. Well, Jen, this has been amazing. And, you know, thank you for, for doing what you're doing and, and really having this, taking this beautiful big view and, and then impacting people locally. So uh, what we'll do is if, if you, uh, I'll, I'll grab links from you as well to share with folks uh, if they want to find out more. What's the best place they want to get a hold of you and, and learn about what you and the team are doing and, and how maybe they can uh, get involved and, and, and get a, I, I love your virtual office space, especially I, I, I like the five, the five walls. Let's, let's not be limited. This is, that's the other thing. It's funny. 
if you tell them I can give you a virtual office, what's the first thing they think? It's got four walls, it's got a ceiling, it's got a desk. You're like, it doesn't have to. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, right? We don't limit. Yeah, and it's super cool. And buildings can be shaped different. Floors can be shaped different. It was actually my four-year-old son's idea that um, one of the buildings be shaped like a red T-Rex. So we have a red T-Rex building. And why not? Like, why not have a red T-Rex building? They're just so much more imaginative. You know, you have a, a four-year-old too, so you know they're just so much more creative and imaginative. But that's, you know, why we look at those things. So a couple places to check is I have jenbonine.com. That's my personal um, website. And that's where I post a lot of the things we're doing that are personal passions that the team's working on. And then our AIAppStore.com um, website for our more enterprise-facing traditional things that we're working on. And then I always enjoy connecting with folks through LinkedIn um, and using that as a way to to connect with new people I haven't yet had the opportunity to um, connect with or meet. So that's another good one too for us. Excellent. Well, thank you. Uh, and I look forward to seeing um, more great stuff come from out of you and your team. It's, it's been a pleasure to, to learn about your journey. And uh, I know there's a, there's a lot of great future ahead. I, I'm looking forward to it. So thanks very much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you so much. It's an honor and a pleasure and very grateful to have the opportunity. So thanks, Eric. This was amazing. Gotta stop my recording there, make sure it works.